In a few moments, we are going to be commissioning you and Jenny and Lee into their new roles as ministry team members at Glasgow Elam. And we've called today Commissioning Sunday. The dictionary definition of the term commission is this. It's the act of committing or entrusting a person, group, with supervisory power or authority. It's an authoritative order, charge, or direction. It's authority granted for a particular action or function. When we read that, we understand then that the act of commissioning is more than just a tick box exercise or something nice to do as an act of welcome. It's actually a profoundly spiritual moment in which we entrust our ministry team members with responsibility. It's a moment when we release authority, spiritually and naturally, authority to those within our church family to accomplish particular tasks. It's when we recognize the call of God upon hearts and lives and say we're making room for that to be outworked within our community and our gathering. And this morning as we approach this commissioning moment of the service, I'm going to be honest with you, approaching this in terms of seeking God for a message has been an absolute wrestle and battle. And I'd originally hoped to kind of bring something that would have spoken to, uh, to Jenny, Lee, and Ewan and, and kind of set them up. But actually, I really sense this morning that as we turn into this commissioning moment as a church, that God isn't just commissioning three individuals, He's commissioning us as a church. This is a commissioning moment for all of us. And we explore that as we turn to a moment in which God commissions His people in Scripture. We're going to turn to the book of Haggai. So it's in the Old Testament. If you get to Zechariah, take a left. If you get to Zephaniah, take a right. And we're going to Haggai, and we're going to read from verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. By the definition of a commissioning moment being a moment in which an authoritative order is given, then what we're reading right now is a commissioning moment. It's when God commissions his people. And as we read these verses, they re reveal to us the voice of God. And actually what is presented within this prophetic utterance is two voices. It's the voice of God and the voice of his people. And straight off the bat, we notice that the voice of God and the voice of the people are saying two completely different things. The people are saying it's not yet time to build the Lord's house. God responds by saying, build my house house. These two voices are almost contradicting. These two voices exist in tension. The people say not yet, and God says now. Now, reading this, we'd be forgiven for thinking that this is quite a rare moment, and one that seems a bit like a role reversal. 
Because I'm pretty sure we've all been there in our Christian journeys when we come to God with our now request and he responds with, not yet, son. Just me? Good. I'm sure we've all been in those moments where we come before God and we say, here's my now request, here's my now thing, here's what I want you to do right now. And God responds by saying, not yet. But in this moment in Haggai, the tables are turned and there seems to be a little bit of a tension between the thoughts of the people and the voice of God. And so God speaks into that moment and he speaks into that situation. As he does, his voice cuts through logic, it cuts through common sense, it cuts through the natural view of the situation and the context and issues a now command. Now when you read through the scriptures, you notice that the moments in scripture in which God issues a now command are moments and seasons in which God is releasing something significant and is realizing something significant. Think about Noah. God speaks to him and says, build an ark because the rain are coming. Logically, in the natural, it didn't make sense as Noah was rubbing in his factor 50 under the basking sun. It didn't seem to make sense. Build a boat, take into animals of every kind because floods are going to come. You need to do this and you need to do this now. Think of Moses. God appeared to him within flames of fire in a burning bush and said, now, go now to Egypt. They've been in captivity for over 400 years, but God says, no, now is the moment. Generations of Israelites had grown up within captivity and slavery within Egypt. It was for them the norm. It was for them just the way of life. They had adapted to their surroundings. They had adopted their culture, but there came this voice that just cut right through logic, cut right through the the, the convenience of the situation and the familiarity of the culture and said, now, I want my people out now. And God wanted, he wanted to mobilize his people. He wanted to release them into something significant and he wanted to realize something significant. He was going to establish them as the nation of Israel. He was going to realize and release his covenant upon them and through them and through their journey with the covenant, God would bring salvation to the entire world. And all of that significance began with a now moment, cutting through the ordinary, cutting through the familiar, mobilizing action. Think of Mary and the shepherds and the Magi. For centuries, the voice of God had been silent. And suddenly, the silence was broken with angelic visitations that released now moments all over the shop. The Messiah is coming now. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you now. Joy to the world and peace on earth to all those on whom his favor rests because right now, a Savior has been born. The now moment interrupted the familiar, the ordinary, released something of significance to the entire world. And then, of course, we come to the upper room when suddenly the Holy Spirit breaks in. And in that suddenly, the Holy Spirit propels the church into mission and into evangelism and into the establishing of the church. And the suddenly of the Holy Spirit communicates the now moment of God and releases momentum. God says to them, I want to release you now. Now is the birth of the church. Now is the time for the gospel. Now is the time for the kingdom of God to go to the four corners of the earth. Now moments in the scripture are moments when God releases something significant within a time and within a generation. They are moments when God begins to realize his agenda at accelerated paces. And he does that by cutting through the ordinary, cutting through the familiar, releasing momentum and bringing change amongst his people. And we see all of that 
in the book of Haggai. God speaks to his people and he says, now, it's time to build right now. It's time to build that which will facilitate something significant within our community and our culture. In fact, they were asked to build the temple. They were asked to build that which would showcase the glory of God to the now generation, to the next generation that would come after them, and to the not yet generation of those that, who are yet to be born. And in order to realize all of that, God had to cut through the conversation. He had to cut through the commentary of the day with his voice because their problem was familiarity. Familiarity is the enemy of progress. And so God has to challenge that. And he does that by calling out the contrast between his voice and the voice of the people. He says, here's what the people are saying. The people are saying, not yet. The time has not yet come. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, build my house. I'm saying the time is now. And as they're confronted with that, these people have to make a choice. A choice to follow popular opinion and that which is familiar. Or a choice to follow the voice of God and commit to action. And I don't know about you, but I kind of get the feeling that perhaps we land at a similar line in the sand as a church and a people today. Our world right now is in a state of upheaval. And on top of that, the current rhetoric is that we exist in a post-pandemic culture. Where once the pandemic dominated the headlines. Remember those moments of just turning on and being utterly depressed? Where the pandemic just dominated the headlines. At the moment, it doesn't. I checked this morning. BBC News is all about prime minister decisions, cost of living crisis, political immorality, the crisis in Ukraine, and who's going to be the next Doctor Who. Where at one point, the pandemic dominated our headlines, it doesn't. But while the pandemic does not dominate our headlines, the truth is the impact of the pandemic still resides amongst us. And there is an apathy amongst the people of God. There is a lethargy, there is a wane in commitment, and we've got to be careful in this significant moment for us that we don't respond as a people and say, not yet, when God's voice is saying, now. We've got to be careful that we don't embody the voice that stands in contrast to the voice of God. Now, don't get me wrong, when it comes to navigating seasons and it comes to navigating experiences of life, we are so blessed that God has given us two of the greatest gifts that we could ever have. They're called logic and common sense. And God gives us logic and common sense because he expects us to use them. He expects us to use them in making decisions and in navigating journeys. And I often think when people say, I've come before God, Pastor, and I've asked him what it is I have to do in this situation, and he hasn't said anything. And I'm thinking, that's because you have to just use your noggin. That's because you have to engage common sense and logic and take the logical, obvious conclusion to this situation. But equally, there are moments in life which we are all too familiar with where God brings us to a place of waiting. He is the God that puts us through seasons of tarrying with him, of fastening onto him in trust and having to learn to wait. And we've been in those moments where we have to make logical, common sense conclusions. And we've been in those moments where we also have to wait and tarry to see what God is going to do. But on top of all of that, our God is a God of the suddenlies. 
He is a God who suddenly shouts. He's a God that suddenly speaks. He's a God that suddenly turns up. He's a God that suddenly proclaims. He's the God that cuts through the logic, natural conversations of the day and the boundaries of the familiar and releases now moments. He's the God that says, you know what? Now is your time. Now is the moment. Now is the hour. Now is the opportunity. Now is your open door. And these now moments are moments in which God realizes and releases something significant. But they're moments in which God normally always releases momentum. Moments in which he seeks to inspire action, particularly in the place of inactivity and silence. We see that in Haggai. They've laid the foundation which we'll come to and then done nothing. And God speaks through Haggai and reveals the conversation among the people. The people are saying the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And when we read them saying that, what we're reading in a sense is delayed hope. There is a belief among the Lord's people that the Lord's house is going to be built. They've already laid the foundation, so that belief is there. They firmly believe that the house is going to get built, but just not right now. It's not going to come. They, they believe for it. They trust for it, they long for it, they hope for it. It's going to happen, but just, just not just now. Eventually it's going to happen, but just not at this moment. And in many senses, this mindset still exists within the church of Jesus Christ today. In fact, it's the mindset that I've grown up with within church and experienced within the experience of Christendom. We believe for souls to get saved and transformed by the gospel. We believe for our community to be changed by the power of the kingdom, we believe for families, our families to come to faith, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors. We believe for the church to grow and for people to have encounters with him. We believe for supernatural breakthroughs and manifestations. We believe for healings and deliverance, visitations, manifestations, habitations of God. It's what we hope for. It's what we pray for. It's what we long for. We believe for revival in the church and complete transformation in our city. We believe for it, but just not yet. It will come, it's going to happen, but just not yet. And we settle in and we get used to living in the not yet. And we build a faith around a deferred hope that we believe it can happen. We believe that God is more than capable to do it. We just don't really, if we're honest, expect him to. How have we come to live with a faith system that believes but doesn't expect how have we come to live with a faith system that examines the Scripture and reads to the Scripture and builds from the Scripture a faith that believes God is going to do what He says He's going to do. We're going to see Him do what we read of Him doing, but we just don't really expect Him to do that. What if? What if God is calling us to shift from a not yet mindset to a now mindset? What if rather than believing for, hoping for a day, when hopefully it will happen, we think it will happen, we pray that it happen, it might happen. What if actually we began to function with the belief it is going to happen and it's going to happen now? What if we believe for a harvest of souls now? What if we believe now for people to get saved in our services and believe that the immediate forward trajectory for our church is growth? What if we believe for God to save our families, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues right now and then before we began to share our faith and invite them to church? What if we believe that God wants to visit, manifest, and inhabit this church, his church, with his presence and his glory right now? What if we believe that God is going to visit and transform our city now? 
And what actually if we believed that maybe he already is? What if we actually began to believe that already he is doing all of that stuff that we have just mentioned? What if we came to a place of shifting from the not yet and living in the not yet to living in the now? I really truly believe, Glasgowland, that we could be standing in a now moment where he calls us to transform our mindsets, to shift our approach, to push through the not yet conversations and hear the now call of God to build, to build something significant that showcases the glory of God to the now, to the next, and to the not yet generation. You know, there's so much that God does around this moment of history that we're looking at as he mobilizes his people to embrace the now moment that speaks to us. And there's two things I want to call out. And to understand that, we've got to come all the way back to the beginning of the story. And that's interesting to say because we're in Haggai chapter 1, reading from verse 1. But the book of Haggai is an interesting one. Because the book of Haggai tells the perspective or tells the overall story from just one perspective. And to understand that properly, we've got to read the book of Haggai alongside the book of Ezra and alongside the book of Zechariah to give it its full context and to get its full meaning. And I know you don't have time for that, so let me give you the edited highlights. Here's the blurb. In 586 BC, a massive Game of Thrones kicked off. (laughs) And the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, they raised it to the ground, and they carried most of the Jewish people into exile. About 50 years later, the Persians looked over at the Babylonians and thought, aye, right, I want to have a go. And so they advanced on the Babylonians, and the kingdom of Persia under the rule and reign of King Cyrus overpowered the Babylonians and brought them under their rule and their empire. This is the moment that the book of Ezra begins to pick up the story. And the first five chapters tell the story of that moment right up until the point that Haggai takes the platform with his prophecy that we read at the very beginning. Now, what Ezra tells us is that God moved by his spirit upon the heart of King Cyrus, and he caused them to release the Jewish people to return to their homeland, to rebuild their settlements, to reestablish the city of God and the temple of God. And what confirms that this is indeed a thing of God, what confirms that this is a miraculous act that could only have been God, is that not only are the Jewish people released to their homeland to build their houses and reestablish the temple, but King Cyrus decides that the government's going to pay for it. That's a miracle. That's an act of God right there. So here's what happens. The people leave the Persian rule and they return to their homeland laden with wealth and the resources that they need to build. King Cyrus literally instructs people that they're going to give to their Jewish neighbors and I quote, they have to give to them silver and gold, goods and livestock, free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. He says to the people of Persia that they have to give loads of stuff to the Jewish people so that they would have all that they need for the task that is before them. And here is a really important principle. When God's people turn their sights and their focus and their energies to the task of building for Him, He resources that task. 
And today is a very special Sunday for us as we get ready to commission members of staff. But more than just saying we've got new staff members on our team, more than just saying look at us, we've grown the team. Actually, we don't want to say any of that. But what we want to say instead is that we want to recognize the hand and call of God on these people's lives and his provision in gifting them to us. We take the personalities and the characters out of the picture and what we look at is that God is resourcing us. He has gifted us the provisions that we need to build something that showcases his glory to the now, the next, and the not yet generation. He is resourcing us. And as they, as individuals, respond to the call and step up to take their place within the building process at Glasgow Elam, so must we. We must give what we have and who we are. And I'm not just talking financially, I'm talking about who we are and what we carry. We all have a role to play. Not just staff, not just leaders, not just those that are something or aren't something. All of us have a role to play. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We are moving away from Christian celebrity nonsense that builds around characters and people and superstars and big names and big voices We are building for him. It's about him. And he involves all of us in that task, not just the chosen few. The people leave the Persian rule and they return to the homeland laden with wealth and the resources that they need for their building. And after a period of settling in, they begin the process of building the temple. And right at the beginning of the process, as they lay the foundations there is a really interesting moment that takes place. It's in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. And it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph's with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. Here is the moment when the foundation of the temple is laid, and there are traces of the familiar here. We see the foundation stone laying process as following a format prescribed by King David. There are priests in their vestments, there are trumpeters, there are singers, and as the nation gathers round and worships, they worship singing, He is good, And his love towards Israel endures forever. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And it's a carbon copy of a moment that happened centuries before in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. When Solomon built the temple. And at the opening of the temple, the priests and the singers and the trumpeters and the symbolists raised their voices. And in unison sang, he is good and his love endures forever. And suddenly, the glory of God descended. And the scripture quotes that amazing phrase, they could not stand to minister for reason of the cloud. They were on their faces. 
Now, we can see when we fast forward that as this new temple has been constructed in this new season, the people lean into nostalgia. They echo tradition. They do what their people did the last time they gathered at a temple opening moment. They do what their people did the last time that caused the glory of God to turn up when they did that. But we've got to understand that it's not a case of when we do this, it causes His glory to turn up because God doesn't work like that, does He? He can't be manufactured. He can't be manipulated. He is sovereign. He does what He wants and He does what He pleases and He does not respond to prescribed formats or magical formulas. They just don't exist with Him. But what is interesting as we read this is that we see a really interesting truth in relation to human beings and the presence of God, and that is that as humans, we do adopt learned behavior in response to the presence of God. <clears throat> when He comes, when we have an experience, when an encounter takes place, when God manifests in our lives or around us in a particular way, we tend to then revisit that behavior, revisit that approach, revisit that formula for that moment because we want to see the same results and the same conclusion. And in some cases, it's not really out of a heart of trying to manipulate God or trying to manufacture an experience or to fake it or to look impressive. It's actually more out of a heart of hunger and desire, a heart of honor and respect that replicates that which saw God move and minister because our desire is to see him move and minister again. But what we have to learn is that God moves in new ways within new seasons. And God is sovereign. He manifests whatever way he chooses. And that means in our Pentecostal charismaniac circles, the mantra of this is what God does with me when he moves in my life, this is why I shout ho or shake because whenever the Holy Spirit comes on me, that's what God does it with me. That doesn't cut it because God doesn't turn around and say to somebody, right, this is now the way I'm always going to manifest in your life. This is the way I'm always going to reveal my presence in your life, right? We'll give them that, that one, that post-it note, and we'll give that one, that post-it note. That's not the way God works. God moves the way that God moves, but what we equally have to learn then is that when we see people adopting what we might deem as learned behavior, they do that every time the Holy Spirit moves. We need to be aware that it's not that person necessarily faking it or trying to show off or trying to pretend that they're spiritual or trying to get attention. Actually, at the heart of that, there could just be a heart of hunger and desire to see God move again in this really strange moment of laying the foundation. As the people lean into nostalgia, we don't read of glory clouds. We don't read of high praise moments or people on their faces because the glory of God has fallen. Actually, what we do read is two very different responses from two very different generations. One generation weeps and the other rejoices. The young celebrate and the old mourn. What's that all about? Why is there celebration and sadness at the exact same time? Well, here we see the tension that exists in the building process of God. 
See, the younger generation in this moment who have no memory of the former temple, no experience of worshiping there, they rejoice and celebrate and embrace wholeheartedly the building of the temple within their culture. At last, there is a place of significance, a place that centralizes their faith, a place that will play a significant role in the development of their spirituality. They probably grew up hearing stories of the former temple, hearing stories of what it was like when God's glory resided amongst them and having a place where where they could explore the dimensions of their faith, but now they could move from hearing stories to having those experiences themselves, raising their kids to have those experiences. Oh, thank God that we have a house that raises our kids within an experience of the presence of God. eh? But in this moment, this is an incredible moment for this younger generation, but for the older generation, it's not. Now, it's not that the oldies don't want the temple being built. It's not that they're not moving with the times and out of date. It's that according to the passage, they remember the temple of old. A weeping comes from the older generation. A weeping perhaps coming out of a place of sentimentality. They remember visiting the temple in this exact spot. They remember encountering God there and exploring their faith there, making their sacrifices, making their pilgrimages, celebrating numerous festivals with their family and their friends, making memories. This would have been a moment of sentimentality as they return to that place and see the building resume again. For some of them, they may be wept from a place of reverence. They'd seen the temple in its glory, and then they'd seen it being torn down and brought to the ground, and now they're back in a place of seeing it being restored again. That would have been moving. But most commentators and theologians reckon that the reason, the main reason why the people are weeping isn't really about sentimentality, and isn't really about being back in that spot again. The main reason is because the current temple is nothing like the former. Its dimensions were smaller. Its materials were less costly and valuable. In fact, it's reckoned that Solomon spent the equivalent of five million pounds to build his temple. David and Solomon's temple was built with pomp and it was built with ceremony, but this one has been built on a shoestring in comparison and with a people that were fresh out of exile in a land that's torn and desolate. So it's suggested that the people weep Because the temple is hugely insignificant in comparison to what was. In other words, it's different. Here's the thing. It might not have looked the same, but it did accomplish the same purpose. It facilitated the presence of God amongst the people of God. You know, here's the problem with building church. The current expression will never look like the former one. And if we're honest, a church that is growing and evolving, then its current expression should never look like its former one. Those who have only ever known the current expression in church embrace it and celebrate it because it's all that they've known. But those who have known and seen past expressions, well, they live in the tension of what was versus what is. And do you know what? I'm aware as we emerge out of covid And we're journeying into a brand new season and there's a new senior pastor and there's more new people coming on and there's change. That those that have been around and seen what was will exist in a state of tension with what is. 
And that's okay. I just want to say that that's okay. But what we do need to get is that God moves in new ways and new seasons. He brings change. He manifests in ways that are fresh and in ways that are different. The way that God ministers, the shape and the format of ministry that is about to take place might not look the same as it did before. Here's a guarantee. The church post-COVID will never look the same as the church pre-COVID. Never. But here is the big thing. It might not look the same, but it's the same God of purpose that is at work through it. And here's how we can cope with change. If we can identify the God of purpose, if we can see his hand and we can recognize his call, if we can see his presence and recognize his influence, then although it might look different, feel different, sound different, seem different, we can still embrace and celebrate what's happening because we see his fingerprints all over it. And this is an important thing for us to grasp today because things are going to look a bit different around here going forward. New people bring new ideas. They bring new approaches to ministry, new ways of doing things, and as long as those new ways are the exact same as my ways, then that's okay. (laughs) But new people bring new ideas. They bring new approaches to ministry, new ways of doing things. New people bring new giftings, new anointings, new ministry dynamics, new ministry practices. And as new people... And these new practices and approaches don't always understand the previous practices that were in place or the way that they have perhaps become sacred within our own owned tradition. So when we build for God as a church, we need to allow grace there. And we need to recognize it might not look the same and it might not sound the same and it might not seem the same, but actually look past the cosmetic surface level of all of that stuff to say, can we still see the same God can we still see his same voice, hear his same voice? Can we still see his presence? Do we still sense the same call? Then we can get behind it and we can go. When we build for God as a church, we need to learn to celebrate and in a sense commiserate at the same time. We celebrate what God is doing as we see his plan unfolding, but we recognize the loss of the past. And it's right to stop and honor and recognize the past because what was past was a value. If we come to the place of saying, well, we're just ditching all of that, we're doing things different now, just deal with it, then that is to say that what was before wasn't valuable, and it was, because it was God's work. It was valuable to him, and it was valuable to his people, but the reality is that as we build for him, that building involves change. Change that should come out of evolution, but change nonetheless. And the current expression is not going to look anything like the previous ones, even over the last 18 months. And we need to guard against pigeonholing God and also guard against preserving our own wee traditions that we need to hang our hat on to feel at home. We need to let go of the old. And we need to reconcile that the old expression isn't going to be the current dynamic and it isn't going to be the current experience, but we need to thank God for what was and celebrate what is and what might be. And we call it out right now, it might not appear as grand. It might not appear as big and as significant as what we remember in the past. Because the truth is, when we look back in things, our historical lens always exaggerates past experiences, makes them look bigger and sprinkles them with glitter. The lens of the past is always golden. But building for God has to mean letting go of previous ways, past approaches and doing things. 
and letting go, not because we're saying that it was wrong. It wasn't. It was right. And there's aspects of that we have to carry with us because it's our DNA. But actually we let go of that stuff so that our hands are ready to pick up what is next. Building involves celebrating and commiserating. It's joy-filled and it's sorrow-filled. We have to make room for the new and come with hands wide open. And you know, as I bring this to a close, it's interesting that when we come back into the Haggai moment, as God gives his authoritative command and direction, he commissions. This is what the Lord Almighty says, go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build my house. Now, as he commissions, he doesn't just direct it to the king. He doesn't direct it to just Joshua. He doesn't just direct it to the priests and the leaders. He commissions all of his people. Every single person is told, go and get wood, come back and build. Glasgow Elam, this morning we commission our ministry team members for this next season, but in actual fact, God commissions every single one of us as a church for this next season that we're stepping into. And we have to steer into this next season together. We have to cross over the threshold moment together. And we do that by recognizing every single one of us has a part to play. Every single one of us has significance to bring. We all have to resource this building process. We all have the part to play. It's time for us to move from a not yet mindset to a now mindset and realize we're in this season now. God is building now. Let's not live in the not yet. Let's live in the now. And let's build with all that we've got for the now, the next, and the not yet.